Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to start Article 10 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the status of the controversy, that is, what is the issue that needs clear confession with regard to the teaching on church practices, which are called adiaphora, or matters of indifference. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Jacob Herkamp. He is the pastor of St. Peter Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Missouri. Pastor Herkamp, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yes, absolutely. We're honored to have you. And to jump right into this, I brought up, so we're starting Article 10. This is the article on church practices, which are called Adiaphora or Matters of Indifference. And so the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord that we use available from CPH gives us a little explanation there of what we mean by the word adiaphora. It defines it as matters of indifference and clearly connected to church practices. But go ahead and give us a little bit more as we begin this article and overview. What do the confessors mean when they take up the article here and they use this word adiaphora? So what we're going to see and hear, especially when we dive into some of the history that's behind this article, is you're going to hear the term adiaphora in conjunction and connection with the customs that the Roman Catholic Church tried to place upon the German Lutherans through the Augsburg Interim. So these customs or traditions that occur in the church that are not necessary unto salvation. That's the common definition of adiaphora, those things, those customs and church traditions that are not necessary unto salvation. And the status I guess you could say, of this article really hinges at the question of when does something actually become something that is necessary or necessary for salvation? And what can people in the church do in worship that take away from What are some of those traditions and customs that they can do without and not change the confession of their faith? So is it kind of fair to say then— Basically, what we're going to be looking at in this article is when is something adiaphora? When is it actually adiaphora and when is it not? Yeah, exactly. That would be a very good way to think about this article because historically, if you go back in time, it's a really interesting timeline because we know that Luther passed away on the 18th of February, 1546. And 25 years after, Luther was deemed a heretic and named an outlaw. And, of course, during those 25 years, the Lutheran theology continues to grow 
and then the government supporting it grows well. And if we remember, it's Charles V, who was the emperor at the time of all of this. When Luther is first named an outlaw, Charles can't do anything concerning the German lands. He has very little influence there because of who he is being from, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Charles was actually from Spain. But we need to remember that during all of this time that the Lutheran Reformation was taking place, Charles had his mind worried about the Turks. They were knocking on Vienna's door in 1529, and that kept him occupied and away from Germany and the Reformation, allowing the Reformation and the theology to really take off. But by the time that Luther dies in February 1546, Charles has the resources and he doesn't have any distraction anymore. And so Germany becomes his chief concern and focus. At the same time, the Germans, the German Lutherans in particular, saw the writing on the wall and formed what is called the Small Called League. And in doing so, they were preparing themselves in a couple of ways for the small called war that Charles would start and began just about four months or so after Luther died. And by April 24th, 1547, the war was effectively done. Some of the electors of the small called League, John Frederick, you might remember his name from various other articles and the history of, of the time of the Reformation, as well as uh, Philip of Hesse. They were led in shame to the Holy Roman Emperor's jail, and they weren't executed, but they were just kept in jail in an effort to re-Catholicize them. And in the process, that's where all of this, uh, the, the term of Adiaphor really picks up steam, because at the end of the small called war, Charles, in an effort to re-Catholicize the area, puts in place what is called the Augsburg Interim. And that happened at Augsburg, 1547. And you can look at it as a program of reform. It was also known as, and this is something from one of our wonderful teachers in the LCMS, Dr. Robert Cole, as the formula of reformation as well. So you have two different terms for this proposal, this interim. And what Rome is hoping to do, again, is to re-Catholicize these German Lutheran lands. And the writers of that interim, and I, and I say the word interim because the things that were written down for these German lands to adhere to was written as an interim because it was only to last until a council would be held. And we know that sooner or later the Council of Trent would begin. And so Charles assumed that the Council of Trent would make all of these stipulations law in a way and would bring about, again, this recatalization of the German lands and bring them all under the Roman Catholic Church and under the authority of the Pope once again. Now, it's kind of interesting, too, to know some of the writers of this interim. Now, you have a couple of Roman Catholics, of course. You have Julius Flug and Michael Helding. But you also have the man by the name of Johann Agricola, or John Agricola, we might remember his name when he was sparring with Luther over uh, the lack of the law. And so he was the evangelical who helped bring all this together because it was some sort of a compromise, if you want to say that. 
and uh, Augsburg Interim had John Agricola, one of our one of the good books that bring out some of the history concerning this period. Says, and this is from, uh, I believe it's Binti. Uh, he quotes um, Agricola saying that he had made the Pope a Lutheran as well as the Emperor. Uh, by going and helping write this Augsburg interim. And so he was boasting about what he did in helping write this Augsburg interim. Now, this is where the Adiaphora question starts to come up, because the interim effectively required the Lutheran lands to return to an understanding of communion as transubstantiation. So that's the the Roman Catholic position that the body and blood of Christ take the form of the bread. The, the form of the bread doesn't change, of course, but everything that made it bread is now gone, and it's only the body of Christ and the wine the same. It is only now the blood of Christ, and that was required as a belief. They also required in this interim that all seven sacraments be reaffirmed as means of grace. And then also, unfortunately, the interim also showed that the doctrine of justification by faith alone from the writings of this interim. So by, by faith through grace alone, we don't see that here in this Augsburg interim. We also, in the interim, hear about the return to the discipline and administration of the bishops, meaning that we are now allowing ourselves to be back under the administration of the Pope and saying that he is the sole person who can interpret Scripture rightly. So many, many major things that were part and parcel for the Lutheran Reformation were now being effectively denied if somebody was to sign on to this Augsburg interim. Of course, everything here is, is interesting because we start to see all of the Lutherans, Melanchthon and many others, openly criticize the Augsburg interim because of the lack of evangelical things. There are only two pieces of the interim that are, I would say, compromised and allow the evangelical, the Lutherans, to continue doing some of their practice. The two things are allowing communion to be in both kinds, as well as their pastors, their priests could be married. Those are the only two concessions that I could find in the Augsburg interim that were pro-evangelical. Um, everything else is returning to the Catholic Church. So that's kind of the Augsburg interim, and then what you what you begin to have here is the question: Well, is transubstantiation really all that bad? How does that affect our confession? Is it necessary for salvation, or is it not? The seven sacraments reaffirmed are those all bad, you know, and the like. And some Lutherans, unfortunately, went that direction. One elector in particular, Elector Moritz. He actually fought for Charles V when the small cloud war took place. And he had been promised that he would not have to change his confession. He was a Lutheran. However, when he, he was basically threatened that he would not receive anything 
um, at all if he went against the emperor and Moritz went with Charles and fought for him. And now during all of this time, he had become the elector over the land of Saxony, the electoral Saxony and the University of Wittenberg. So he was Melanchthon's elector, prince. And everything that had been promised to Moritz had been forgotten. And so now Moritz is in a, between the rock and a hard place and did not really want to repeat uh, And so Moritz is seeking a compromise. He is trying to, he, he uses Melanchthon and a few others to try to work through the Augsburg Interim and bring up and make a counterproposal, as it were. And so to say, hey, we can agree to disagree on some of these things, and we can allow these ceremonies to come back and the like. And that's one thing I forgot to mention, the various ceremonies that of the Roman Catholic Church that had been cut out by Luther in, the, in his Deutsche Messe, uh, and his Latin as well, several different ceremonies and what the Roman Catholic Church would call sacramentals were also required in their services now. And so Moritz, through Melanchthon, was trying to compromise, uh, bring some proposals back, saying we can, we can allow this, we can't allow that, so on and so forth. And that is where we get this other interim, I guess you could call it, the Leipzig interim, um, and uh, Dr. Kolb. Um, Before you go on to the Leipzig interim there, I think there's a good place to pause for a second. We definitely want to pick up the Leipzig interim, but I like how you've walked us through the history and setting up this article. I like what you said, things that are effectively a part of the Lutheran Reformation that were very much the things that we were worried about being truly evangelical through that the gospel be proclaimed, that the abuses and errors be removed. And you said that during this Augsburg interim, basically what they were trying to do is re-Catholicize. I like that term. That's a good term. By putting these stipulations on the practices of the church. And so I think that's a good place here to pick up just briefly before we jump into the Leipzig interim, that this connects with the very first paragraph of the article here in the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. So let me just go ahead and read that here so this is, again, Article 10, church practices, which are called adiaphora or matters of indifference, from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. And again, on this show, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. This is paragraph one of Article 10 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. A disagreement has also arisen among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession, about ceremonies or church rites that are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but have been introduced into the church for the sake of good order and fitting use. So I, I want to bring you back in here and, and let you go into the Leipzig interim and explaining some of those church rites and ceremonies that are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but are there for the sake of good order and fitting use. But when it becomes a matter of confession, as we'll certainly see play out over the next couple episodes on this show, when it becomes a matter of confession, it's not about adiaphora anymore. It's about being evangelical, as you laid out for us, that it be the proclamation of the gospel. So go ahead and then pick up and continue to explain for us how this ties in and launches us into the Leipzig interim. So I want to go make us go back real quick to consider 
Luther's baptismal rite, for instance. We know Luther was one who basically looked at all of the liturgical rites of the church, and instead of starting from scratch, he took what was good and he cut out what was bad. So, for instance, in the baptismal rite, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had some interesting additions. For instance, the salt. They, they padded salt on the child, or they passed salt around. I can't quite recall. But Luther got rid of that, right? Because it, it did not really help the confession of baptism and the work that God was doing for the child in the waters and the word. Same could be said for the Eucharistic prayer and the Mass itself. It did not confess a rite that God was working through Christ in his own body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but made it sound like we were sacrificing something to God, and that's why we have the, we get the term sacrifice of the Mass of the Roman Catholics. And so those things were brought back in. And unfortunately, Melanchthon and through Moritz really compromised on these things. And that really brought some major heat through other students of Luther. And uh, you might know a few of their names. Nicholas von Amsdorf was one. Matthias or Matthias Flacius, a uh, another Hebrew, he was a Hebrew scholar um, and professor at the University of Wittenberg. He wrote extensively against this and uh, worked hard to call this what it was. And he was very upset and fought hard for the liturgy as Luther laid it out, as well as the theology that was behind all of it, the evangelical theology. And so he was probably the most vocal, and some of the stuff that I came across suggests that Flacius actually got a hold of this Leipzig uh, proposal, and he was, he was the one who really actually, he kind of made it, in a prop, he propagandized it in a way. He, he took it, it wasn't really supposed to be printed for everybody to see, but he took it anyway, and it was published. And Flacius was a major, major publisher and felt that this was too important not to pass around as well and to show the concerns and to show that these medieval liturgical practices did not proclaim the evangelical faith, but actually repudiated it. So with the liturgy, you start to see the reintroduction of bells, lamps, vestments, canonical hours, as well as even memorial masses for the dead being reestablished. You begin to have Corpus Christi celebrations where the body and blood of Christ are not being consumed, as is the Lord's command, but being paraded around the streets. Those are the things that were being reintroduced through these interims and the like. And I must say, too, that southern part of Germany in particular, hundreds of pastors were sent into exile because of these things, as they would not go along with the interim, and so they were exiled. So in the midst of all of this, people were no longer able to hear the evangelical confession, evangelical proclamation of the gospel that you are saved by Christ, the Tony sacrifice of the cross, or your sins being saved by Christ alone. And so all of those things were part of the liturgical re And those are the big things that 
in particular was uh, extremely critical of. And with the uh, proposal of the Leipzig interim, I guess you could call it, the evangelicals get really, really upset with Philip Melanchthon because of what he allows to be brought back. Because, hey, it may or may not affect our confession. It's a diaphora, matters of indifference. And so in particular, for instance, the Gnasio Lutherans, as you might know, and our hearers as well, um, our listeners, they might know that many of them did not wear vestments, okay? Well, vestments were something that Felicius never wore because it reminded him and reminded others of the Roman Catholic Church and the vestments were a requirement um, according to the Roman Catholic Church. And so no longer were they something that was indifferent. They were required for the divine service or for the sacrifice of the Mass. And that part, they were no longer adiaphora because now they were being said to be part of our salvation, that worked towards our salvation. And so this is where we get the, the formula, the epitome, talking about these things that are not commanded nor forbidden. Investment is not something that God commands, at least in the New Testament. We can go to the Old Testament and we see how the, the Levitical priests were indeed dressed the way they were, knowing what we know about the ceremonial laws being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. All of the vestments that were worn by the high priests and the sons of Aaron all pointed to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who came in his flesh for us. And we see that everything, yes, it is a nice thing to have vestments, but it's not required for our salvation. It's not an article or a thing. If we don't wear them, it shouldn't lead to our damnation, for instance. Okay. Great place to pause there, especially as we consider that when it becomes something that is commanded and connected, especially with our understanding of how we receive salvation, then it no longer becomes a matter of adiaphora. It becomes a matter of confession, which is where paragraph two will take us. And we'll take that up on the other side of the break. And I'll kind of give it away here too, that I, I think that perhaps in our culture today, we have the opposite error where it's almost commanded that we not wear vestments. But really what we're concerned about with is that we not get commands on things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in scripture, but that we have a clear confession of the gospel. That's always the point of our Lutheran confessions. That's the point of the show. And so we're glad to have Pastor Herkamp on walking us through our confession of the gospel here with relation to church practices. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. 
And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Jacob Herkamp. He is the pastor of St. Peter Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Missouri. And just before the break, we were talking about how in the re-Catholization of the Lutherans, in terms of the practices in the church that were being done, especially in the church ceremonies and rites, Pastor Herkamp was bringing in for us that some of the things that we were seeing there were like with the vestments, where the Catholics had tied this to a matter of salvation, that the priests had to wear vestments. And so then it becomes a matter of confession. As I said before the break, I think probably in America we have the opposite problem, and Pastor Herkamp can feel free to talk about that or not. We'll certainly be bringing that up as we go forward in this article, specifically in a couple episodes when we get to the things that we reject and condemn. That's usually where in our format that we get the sort of contemporary things that we see today. But this really is a big factor that when it becomes a matter of confession, basically when you tell us you have to do something and it's tied to the gospel or matter of salvation and so forth, we push back hard as Lutherans and we say, no, you can't make the gospel into a law. You can't force this. And so we'll push back and say, No, what we need is clear confession of the gospel. And we can certainly have great conversations about what are good practices for the church. I think if you've been listening to the show very long, you know pretty well where I stand on this issue is is that I think that vestments are very good. And probably I fall under what we call high church liturgy, although I just call it liturgy. It's what the church does. And I think there are very good reasons, biblical reasons, historical reasons, very Lutheran reasons that we have vestments, but if you come in and you say, the pastor has to wear a vestment or a specific vestment because it's tied to the salvation of the people sitting in this pew, I will take that vestment off and I will throw it away and burn it until it's no longer a matter of confession because that is what truly is at stake here. And so we don't wanna fall onto that on either side here, but this is what is picked up then in paragraph two and laying out what is going on in this article connected with these matters of confession. So again, this is picking up, we're covering the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 10, Church Practices, which are called adiaphora or Matters of Indifference. And this is paragraph two, the chief controversy about this article. The chief question has been about a time of persecution and a matter of confession, even when the enemies of the gospel have not reached an agreement with us in doctrine. Can some abolish ceremonies, which in themselves are matters of indifference and are neither commanded nor forbidden by God, but reestablished by the pressure and demand of the adversaries without harming our conscience? May we compromise with them in such ceremonies and adiaphora? To this question, one side has said yes, the other no. So that's kind of the bird's eye map view of what's going on, what the status of this controversy is. And Pastor Herkamp, you've been doing a great job of walking us through the history of how we got to this point and, and some of the things that we're going to see brought out in this article as we go forward. But go ahead and pick up here then. You were giving us an idea of some of the, the ceremonies and practices and things that were going on that led to the Leipzig interim that were matters of confession. But go ahead and pick up where you were leading us then especially with this idea in mind that what we're looking for is agreement and doctrine and not a burden on conscience in these matters of confession. Yeah, so I believe I had said something to the effect about the investments being re- reestablished and then some of the other ceremonies like the Corpus Christi parades and, and the like. And 
those were certainly ceremonies that were occurring through the church, that were coming back through the church. And I want to just really quickly, I know we've been talking much about what was happening inside the church and through the bishops and the popes and the like, but we also need to make sure and remember that during this time, especially with this article, we're not just having the church force things upon the Lutherans, but we're also seeing the secular government in this article. In particular, we have to remember that you have Moritz, he's an elector, electoral Saxony. He's behind, he's pushing the, the Leipzig interim. He's wanting peace for his people. And so the secular government is in this as well. And uh, in a book that uh, Dr. Kolb put out back in 91, published by CPH, Confessing the Faith, Reformers Defining the Church, he lays out some of the history that you might be interested in if you are looking at the contemporary situations with our secular government right now um, in light of our COVID-19 pandemic and the various dates and their government's telling us how to host our services. And so the government is also talked about in light of this article. So Dr. Cole puts out the decade following the interim controversies, the Ganesio Lutherans continued to develop the Wittenberg Doctrine of the right to resist governmental authority for just cause. And it's underneath this article about Adiaphora and what is harming our conscience. And that's that's an important, um, I think it's a really important part of that paragraph too. You know, being able to say and speak out about how our conscience feels. Are the things that we are seeing and what the parishioners are seeing in church, is that hurting their conscience. Um, going back to the vestments, seeing a surplus on the pastor was something for was, was one step too far for Flacius and, and for his lay people. He could not do that. So they were all signs of faith for him. So something that actually the, the vestments themselves strengthened or decreased the faith of the lay person in the pew and affect conscience when it came to the faith, which is what we are dealing with here in Article 10. And so effectively, yeah, the, the Marian celebrations of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Corpus Christi parades, where the people were no longer participating in the eating and drinking as commanded by Christ, but were just parading the body and blood of Christ around. And you can begin to understand why it was no longer just something that was indifferent, but it was actually hurting the conscience, and it was not confessing the faith as preserved, and what would be the, I would say, that blossomed out of the Reformation, and basically came back. You know, the gospel was refound in the time of the Lutheran Reformation, and it certainly became much more pronounced by the Lutherans, because Luther did a marvelous job in keeping the things that were good and right, and uh, taking away those things that actually harm. I'll say it that way, I guess. So, well, and can I the, say uh, here that go ahead, go ahead. I, I think tying in with what you're you're making the point of here as well is we certainly see in the Augsburg Confession where it's cited several times that we keep a lot of the ceremonies specifically because they can be kept without sin and they're very useful for teaching 
teaching the evangelical doctrine, confessing the faith. And so we keep all of the proper ceremonies and rites of the church. We maintain the liturgy and the vestments because they can be kept without sin. So I think that makes the point here of everything that the Lutherans could keep, especially in the Augsburg Confession, when it is right at the heart of the Reformation, we did keep it and we weren't willing to get rid of it. But if you come in and you start forcing things upon us, well, now it becomes a matter of confession, right? Now it becomes a matter of burdening consciences that could lead them astray from the gospel. And so now it becomes a matter of confession and especially tied to a lot of these things, certainly as you brought in like the Corpus Christi parades, that's just a right that really just has no business in the church at all. And that was something that we did away with at the time of Reformation. I have no interest in bringing back in because that's not what it's for. That's not what the body and blood of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine is for. It's for the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, as we teach very simply in the small catechism. And so that's where we want to direct people. But if you're going to come in and say that we have to have these sorts of rites and ceremonies, and that's a part of the church, well, now we're leading people away from the gospel, and we're just not going to do it. We're going to make this a matter of confession, and it's not a matter of adiaphora then, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, and let's keep going down that road concerning the liturgy. You know, nobody at the time of any of these interims said that the liturgy didn't matter, right? They were all vital pieces of the church or the life of the church and for the individual believer. The question is, is how far can you let it go and what is allowed? We also can look at all the different liturgical uh, services from the various German Lutheran states at that time, right? They weren't all exactly the same. They had some different things that they themselves individually brought in or, or perhaps were just did it in different ways. But the main point for the Gymnasial Lutherans when it came to the rites and ceremonies that were in the liturgy and were used and were deemed useful were those rites and ceremonies that were simple and really did not allow for superstitious beliefs to arise. So like Amsdorf, Nicholas von Amsdorf, a great book just came out, I believe, in the last year or two um, on Amsdorf from CPH. He called for moving altars away from the wall so that the words of institution could be experienced as proclamation of the gospel instead of the idea that we are sacrificing and giving something to God, for instance. The whole idea of raising the host and the cup was something that some Lutherans were concerned about because they saw that as it would be considered more of that sacrificial movement. You know, we're raising it up for God and the like, so on and so forth. I think there, too, uh, another place to kind of help us think in our modern context is just what you've laid out for us is that the very things that we do teach something. They confess something. You know, they give an impression of what it is that we believe or what it is that we're doing. And so you do have to evaluate your context. I'm not negating that at all. And and so certainly in the context of this re-Catholicization of the Lutherans and these things being forced upon us, yeah, maybe they evaluated their context and said, hey, we're going to do specific things here to not give the wrong impression of things that are connected with, you know, to, to use the old phrase that's thrown at us a lot, things that are too Roman Catholic because it's in connection with doctrines and teachings that we don't hold as Lutherans. But again, I, I yeah. might say that on our current context on the other end, 
what we have and what we see is just the great influence of broad American Christianity, reformed thinking, especially in terms of the Lord's Supper, so much so that it's not uncommon, and I'm not being mean or, or nasty here by any means, but it's not uncommon to encounter LCMS Lutherans, lifelong LCMS Lutherans, sitting in the pews on Sunday who don't actually believe in the true presence as we believe Christ truly present in with and under the bread and wine. And it's, I think, because of the influence of the Reformed teachings and practices that have dominated American Christianity. And so I think in right sense, some of our Lutheran churches, and especially myself, have returned to some of those practices that teach our people just by what we do, hey, this is really Christ here. We actually believe that. This is Christ's true body and blood in, with, and under this bread and wine. And when you're in the presence of Christ, that deserves reverence. And so, yeah, I'm going to kneel at the altar to teach and to show you, hey, this is Christ truly present here for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, and salvation. And so, again, that's all connected into this Adiaphora controversy as well, is what we do says something about what we believe. You know, the old Lex Verandi, yeah, Lex Credendi. Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead and talk yeah. about that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a big argument. What we do matters. What we wear matters. And especially when you are trying to force something forth upon us, I'm going to use that phrase again, re-Catholicize our people to the point where when you make something like that, or say this, this is for our salvation, make it part of our you know, work for our salvation or whatever. That's a problem for us. And I was going to say, you know, what you were talking about when it came to um, what we see now, I'm just, uh, I don't want to seem mean or anything about Melanchthon, but it's something that we need to be aware of, is that Melanchthon did not see, he, he wanted to continue to perfect the Augsburg Confession, right? And when he did that, he continued it seemed to move things along, uh, particularly with the uh, doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and to the point where John Calvin even signed on to a later form, the Variata form of the Augsburg Confession, right? And John Calvin being the leader, and the, the, the reformer that we know as and brought on the Calvinist Church, we, uh, we can, you can kind of begin to see even then, with all of these continued variations of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon continues to tweak and to, to prod and to change just a smidge here, a smidge there. And I don't wonder, and this is just me speculating a little bit, but I don't wonder if some of that actually helped him come to terms with writing what he wrote for the Leipzig proposal, or if you want to call it interim, like Flacius did. I don't wonder if that kind of helped him a lot saying we can be okay here, we can compromise there and the like. And with some of this stuff, if you go far enough along, the parties of the Lutherans, you have the Gnasio Lutherans, and you have the Philippists, those who are following Philip, and just two decades later, many of the Philippists sharply reject anything that like that slightly smacks the papists. So it's kind of an interesting deal that comes out of all of these things, where Philip seems to be okay with the requirements that the Roman Catholics are putting upon them at the time, you know, and acknowledging all seven sacraments, acknowledging the, acknowledging some of the other church rites and ceremonies, 
being reintroduced. And again, one thing that does not really show up in even uh, Melanchthon's proposal is justification by faith alone. It's not there. And then he also, to go one step further, as in that good works are necessary for salvation. So while that doesn't show up in Formula 10, per se, what transpires and comes out of the Leipzig interim proposal and the Augsburg interim itself, you get a lot of different things that need to be laid out for the Gymnasio Lutherans to bring back up to speak more about. And so with these things, we, we need to be aware of just how many different attitudes came out of this time period and then how the formula dealt with it so well, um, I think, you know, does these things harm our conscience? And if they do, we need to speak up about them. And where can we make these compromises and allow these customs to continue? And of course, they are going to lay it out. It's in good order, just like the Augsburg Confession did. Is it good and does it proclaim the gospel for us? Does it show Christ for our salvation in Christ alone? And if that's the case, yes, we should we should certainly continue to do those customs. Which I guess puts so, a little bit of a point on kind of what I was bringing up then, too. Of It's not just when we're talking about these matters of confession, that is. It's not just that it's a matter of confession when it comes to someone saying, this is required for salvation. But is it also fair to say then it's also a matter of confession if not doing these things can lead us away from our salvation. Kind of like what I said in our modern context of where if we're getting the impression by what we're doing and we're indirectly teaching maybe even that there's nothing special about the Lord's Supper, that leads away from salvation because what we're doing then is effectively denying the true presence of our Lord in, with, and under the bread and wine. Totally. I think, I mean, I put it this way, I think you can fall off the horse on either side, where we don't put enough emphasis on what we're doing, and we don't teach well. So I know that calling the pot black here, you know, the kettle calling the pot black, how much teaching are we doing as pastors on these things? Why do and do do our, I'm, I'm about to confirm um, a few of my confirmation students on this coming Sunday. And it's a uh, question that I always have for myself. Do my, do my kids that I do a good job in telling them why we do what we do? How does that confess our faith? And if we, if we go about these things nonchalantly, sooner or later, they won't matter. They'll be considered out of the opera, right? And so on and so forth. And you're, you're right. We, we certainly can, can go the other direction, too, with these things, where if we don't do them we're specifically harming somebody's faith. Like if we don't confess the Lord's Supper aright, and we just say it's just another memorial meal or something like that, then we're certainly not helping somebody's faith, right? Which I think then brings us to what we often like to highlight on this show is that the hub of everything, the hub of all theology, as we like to say, what the church stands or falls on is that chief article of our Christian faith, which is justification, who Christ is, what he has done for us, And that's very central to the gospel. And so anything of our confession in any other various articles begins to either fall apart when we fall away from a true confession of that article or really becomes a problem and can cause others to stumble and fall away from the faith. 
And so then we see that becomes really the hub of what it is that we're talking about church practices of what can truly be called adiaphora or matters of indifference or not. And what we have to do is begin our conversation with Jesus, the article of justification. And then we're going to see that this ties into a lot of our confession on the various other articles. And what we see then is basically it's a body of doctrine. There's many ways to enter in and talk about here, but at the heart of it all is that article of justification. But these things are all interconnected. I mean, just in the way that you've laid out the history for us, bringing up John Agricola and, and some of the others and citing those names, you know, what we see is those are ones that we've talked about in the other articles. And so, yeah, this is connected with what we talk about in terms of good works and law and gospel and the third exactly. use of the law and the, the Holy Supper and, and all of these things really become interconnected here. But that hub is always the article of justification. So I guess with just a couple minutes left here, go ahead and leave us with kind of your parting thoughts on this article as we set it up and go in the next couple of weeks with the affirmative statements and the negative statements. Well, when you take a look at it, I encourage you to read further along through all of this. And if you have the opportunity to go back and see more about these two interims or what the, the Augsburg interim and then the Leipzig proposal or interim, however you want to call it, you're going to see just how, just what you just said, how connected those things are to various other articles laid out in our Book of Concord. And the names that you find throughout that those, that time of history, they all kind of have something, Article 10 certainly uh, deals with a lot of things and is connected, like you said, to our confession of the faith, in particular, how we are justified by Christ alone, through faith alone. And it's not connected necessarily to ceremonies or anything like that, but we need to also lay out what the ceremonies are and what ceremonies are not something that, you know, when we talk about the Roman Catholics desire to really order the Lutherans to go back to the seven sacraments. Well, do they all really do what they say they do? And, uh, you know, Melanchthon was, had given before a definition. He's basically said the definition is what really matters when it comes to the word sacrament. We can define sacrament in such a way that all seven makes sense. But if we're looking solely at what Jesus says about the, about the baptism and the Lord's Supper and absolution, for instance, being commanded by him to be done for our salvation, those are three things that we cannot give up. But uh, walking into the intro, it and singing the intro it. Now, that might be something that not everybody desires to do, for instance, in part of the liturgy. I like doing it. It's a wonderful thing, but it does not necessarily need to be read or sung for my salvation. It wasn't ordered by Christ in that way. But when we look at all of these things, our church practice, and we look at the adiaphora, the, the question of what is it, and we have these different, the, all these different people bringing up stuff and looking at how Melanchthon unfortunately compromised in various ways and how Flacius and then the, the men of the formula go about this. We see it's laid out very nice for us, something that we continue to grapple with even today. I think Article 10 is probably one of the most argued articles of the formula in our day, 
for various reasons, uh, as Pastor Smith has laid out already today, and I'm sure you'll hear more about that sooner. But we're very much indebted to the men who work so very hard to lay out a Christ-centered way of understanding what we say and what we do in worship services ought to confess Christ and Him crucified for our sins and for our salvation. And so those things we need to continue to, I think, work together, that we walk in concord as this whole formula encourages us to do. Absolutely. Centered on Christ is our confession. It is the proclamation of the gospel. That's what matters for Concord. And so we thank Pastor Herkamp for joining us for Concord Matters today and setting up for us the history and overview of the Lutheran confession of the gospel on matters of church practices, which are called adiaphora or matters of indifference, as we covered the beginning of Formula of Concord, Article 10. We also thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, Keep confessing, church.